Scaling and growing a startup can be tricky and sometimes even mysterious. It requires leaders to have a breadth of knowledge on company building strategies across marketing, sales, product, and talent. The Startup Guide to Growth was created to be the definitive podcast on growth strategies for startups. Hosted by Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that you can use to scale your company through insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your startup? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as an investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Welcome to the show. My name is Abhishek Lahoti, and I am the VP of Business Development for EMEA at Sapphire Ventures, filling in for Rico this week. For this episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Robbie O'Connor, who is the GM of EMEA at Notion. Robbie is a seasoned sales executive who has successfully built EMEA operations for Google, Dropbox, and Asana before joining the team at Notion. So what I wanted to focus on with him was a discussion on just what it takes to scale your European go-to-market operations. Robbie, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. Before we get into everything, can you just provide people and the listeners with a little bit of information on you and your background, the roles and experiences that led you to Notion? Absolutely. So thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Shek. I'm really, really happy to be here and looking forward to, to a conversation. It may or may not seem unusual, but my career to date hasn't really followed a very particular plan, so to say. It might sound odd, but my personality and how I'm wired has sort of dictated the decisions that I've made. Um, I love technology and I love people. I really enjoy working on problems, particularly business problems. Uh, you know, leaving university, I was really fortunate to be hired by Google, and I was even more fortunate to join a really, really niche team there. At the time, Google was figuring out how to monetize the Google Maps API platform, and I joined just as the division decided to build a SaaS-oriented go-to-market business and an engine. So it was a really young book. I was really fortunate to be part of a scaling journey with front row seats to watch some incredible leaders built a, a multifunctional division from the ground up. Um, and that was the very, very early stages of that, uh, of that business function. It's, it's grown into be a multi-billion dollar business line now, but uh, I'm super fortunate to see how that started from the beginning. I loved working for this team and I took the opportunity to learn as much about SaaS, about operations, around marketing and sales as I possibly could. Um, primarily out of curiosity, as you'd imagine it. I also built up a really good network of smart people who I knew would do really great things in their career. And I met many of them later on down the line. My family, I've got a whole bunch of brothers and they're all entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur as well. So I always admired the challenges they took on and, and the kind of businesses that they built themselves, taking things on from scratch. You know, no matter what tasks were big or small, they kind of managed themselves. Working for a bigger organization, I always felt that like I was, I was kind of not as strong in their presence because I kind of took the safer path of not kind of building my own business. Um, so I guess I always had this desire to drive a really high level of impact, seeing as what my family were doing in their own in their own businesses. So a little bit further down the line, I was kind of interested in seeing, is there a crossover between working in a, in a, in a really good leading edge technology company, but also being in a position where I could have a really, really high level of impact in the work that I do. And while Google's an amazing company, you know, you're still a very, very small cog in a very, very large wheel. I joined a, a leadership program within Google at the time, and I came across a character called Chris Farinacci. He was the CMO of G Suite at the time um, within Google, and he was, he was like the, the executive sponsor for this program. And I kind of hit it off with him. He introduced me to a number of things, one of them being viral growth models. At the time in his job, he was explaining that he had an enormous war chest of marketing funds that they could spend 
but they were struggling to make G Suite very appealing to many businesses because email from Microsoft, the switch over to something like Google was, was something that was unusual for them. So he talked to me a lot about things like viral growth models. And the example that he showed me specifically was, was Dropbox. At this time, Dropbox was a couple of years old, had a really great product and had some really clever growth hacks, but they managed to create an enormous amount of brand recognition and subsequent user growth with really meager input and funds. The product really fascinated me just because it was a really good product, incredibly useful product came along at the right time, and the growth trajectory was stellar at the time. So I felt it might have been a really good middle point between you know, that really cool tech company I wanted to work for, and then somewhere where you can drive a really high level of impact from being a little bit earlier stage. I took a chance by reaching out to an exec in Dropbox, and it just so happened that they were looking to grow their international operations. So a couple of conversations later, I was their first hire in Europe in, in the EMEA region. But at the same time, they, they hired an industry heavy hitter, a guy called Johan Budding, who led operations within the region. At that stage, I, I didn't know too much about how companies go from bootstrap to Series A to Series B and Series C funding and going public, et cetera, et cetera. I just thought it'd be a really cool ride. Um, but I had the opportunity to work with Johan and, and the leadership team that he built, um, as well as global functional leaders, to learn a bit more about, about how to build operations, particularly while a company is going through a period of hyper growth, all the ups and downs and, and ins and outs. Johan had some great strategies on building his teams that I learned from. At the time, Dropbox was really popular and we knew we had a really good, we knew we had to build a sales organization, but the nature of the product, you know, Dropbox was the first kind of B to C to B SaaS technology out there. So it wasn't very clear what the nuances of the go-to-market needed to be. In the early days, you know, knowing that instead of hiring very experienced salespeople, we decided to hire very early career people, people who were super smart and were really flexible enough to throw out a problem and make it figure it out. And that was a really, really rich experience in, uh, in running a bunch of, you know, what were experiments during the first couple of years as we built out the region for Dropbox. And I personally got to, got, to, got to run a bunch of early stage teams like sales, like account management, sales development, a little bit of business development within the region as well. So I was almost the guy who was helping get things up on stilts to begin with and help kind of get them moving towards kind of operational efficiency and figure out whether it's something that we wanted to continue to invest in a little bit further down the line. Fast forward a number of years, the person who actually hired me into Dropbox is a guy called Oliver J, OJ. And he had just moved over to a company called Osana to, to be their, their head of revenue there. And he was someone who I'd kind of maintained a high degree of mentorship with. I think part of his remit was to get international operations rolling as well, because we had, we had a good friendship and a relationship. He felt that I'd be a good person to, um, to get Asana rolling within, within Europe as well. So I guess for me, that was a good bit of growth. Um, I was very curious to experience a different type of SaaS technology that was in a category that was somewhat latent. And, uh, and I came on board with Asana to, to lead the region for them as well. We started with, with four people in a small little office in Dublin. And fast forward four years, we had about a team of about 180 um, across numerous different functions within the organization, from sales to customer success to user support. And then with the region, the region we also built a marketing function, a legal function, people operations, and, and general facilities as well. And I ended up being the, the general manager for the region there. So directly responsible for all direct revenue dotted line responsibility for all um, online revenue or, or self-service revenue, and then had the site leadership role to kind of maintain a, a coherent regional go-to-market strategy, which pulled together um, in a matrix org, many different elements of, of the go-to-market. So that was a really fun journey. Um, Asana was a very different ride to something like Dropbox or Google, where the category had been a degree of latency, but the product always had a ton of potential. I think we crossed the chasm past the $100 million mark, and then we're moving towards the, the $300 million. And I felt that over four and a half years, I'd given a lot to the organization. I was considering an internal move within Asana to, to get the APAC region rolling when a good mentor of mine, Sarah Cannon from Index Ventures, put me in contact with, with a couple of organizations that she was helping my mentor and guide. And I met Ivan and Akshay from Notion. 
I was really impressed with the product. I'd seen it a number of times within the market before. And I was really impressed with the no-code movement in general. Seeing where the company was at with the, the type of journey that was laid ahead, I was ready for a new beginning at that point. And I think I kind of found one of my strengths is, you know, helping companies build operational, building regional operations and building teams from scratch. So I thought it was a very natural choice for me at that stage. And here I am today in Notion. It's quite the journey. I feel like I should just tell people to watch what you're doing at all points in time because you seem to be picking the winners left and right. It also goes without saying that you and I know each other from our Dropbox days. So there's a bit of a, a Dropbox crew that exists in the market there of, of all these people who've done really amazing things. Let's talk about Notion. You, you kind of said opening markets. What, what is your title and what is the role currently entail at Notion? Yeah, absolutely. So currently, um, it's very early days and in very early stage companies, your, your job title is one thing and kind of what you cover on a day-to-day -day basis can swing, depending on what's required within a given quarter or within a given half or even through the year. Um, so at the moment, I would say my job title is, is our general manager for the region. And I guess my, my AOR, my AOR responsibility would be to craft and spearhead strategic vision and the go-to-market plan for, for the EMEA region. I guess that also encompasses creating and cultivating collaborative and productive relationships with key internal stakeholders um, to execute on what the aligned go-to-market plan is, um, ultimately help us lay the foundation to grow our operations and subsequent revenue within the region as well. I think in line with that as well, because our company is still really figuring out what type of functions will grow and where we need to invest in within the organization, what responsibility will remain in headquarters or will, will run from there, and then what degree of autonomy does the region need? We're constantly working with, with my boss, with, uh, with Akshay, who's our COO, on what the matrix management org would look like. Um, what are our centralized strategies? And then what is the nuance within the region that kind of needs to be granted there as well? So I guess the way I look at it with him is I almost have three roles at the moment. Um, if we say that the company needs a guiding hand on what's our go-to market for the region look like, um, to what degree should we be investing in new markets? What new markets do we need to be going after? Over markets that are performing well, how do we continue to turn the dial up there and move forward? Um, should we have more of a, of a self-service approach to a market or should we be dialing up something like a, a direct sales approach as well? Then ultimately painting what are the nuances around each one of those markets uh, and how do we how do we build in that nuance into our, into our plan? And at the same time, kind of stitching together a matrix management org of kind of global leaders and regional leaders to help us put together some form of a coherent regional strategy. We're also very aware that at this stage of the organization's growth, everything changes really every, every, it changes a lot every three months. It changes significantly every six months and you can be damn sure it's quite different a year down the line. And um, so kind of trying to be that guiding compass from a general management perspective. Then within the region, I'm directly responsible for our sales engine, for our sales team. We're just still hiring. We're getting a foundational team off the ground. And I'm also doubling up as uh, in the interim basis. One of my colleagues has gone on maternity leave. So I'm leading the global sales organization for, uh, for Notion at the moment. So I kind of wear three hats. Between regional GM, regional sales leader, and then global sales leader right now. Yeah, not a lot of stuff. It seems like you're just you know casually doing three jobs that most people would find incredibly difficult to do one. So, so I want to talk to you a bit about Europe, and, and this is the reason that I that we've asked you to join because Sapphire Ventures wrote a playbook about how to open up. You, if people can't tell, are European from your accent. You're from Ireland originally, but you've also just been working in Europe your whole career. So, what is the insight you share, or you could share rather, to someone who's just not familiar with the region at a high level when you're selling here? As an American who moved to Europe, for example, I'm used to a very homogenous sales region with small changes here and there. Europe is, is usually quite different. So what, do you, what is your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for many scaling organizations, Europe presents a very, very appealing opportunity 
for any product that's really, that's really got good global growth potential, but also presents a unique set of challenges as well. And while it can be very appealing to want to get spun up within Europe and get moving, um, and European markets are very attractive and, and very lucrative, the operational element to doing it sequentially correctly and safely can be a real head scratcher for organizations that are entering the market from outside. Why is that? Europe is, is made up of many, many, many different markets, many cultural differences, language differences, and business differences as well. And so I think when you're entering the region, you need to be well aware of what those different nuances are and then prioritize your approach to different, to different markets and whatnot. Um, typically, we see, particularly with, with, I guess, my experience is very oriented around tech. Um, if you have a product that's becoming reasonably popular um, from the get-go, you can get a good read on where it's becoming popular. Europe has a number of very, very large economies that are very powerful and very tech-savvy. You've got some economies that are smaller, but are still very powerful and, and are tech-savvy. And then you've got some more legacy oriented economies within the region as well, where you need a, probably a different approach from a go-to-market perspective. The interesting thing about Europe at the moment is that while many of the primary industries and kind of anchor industries for the larger economies, what would be considered more traditional, you know, FMCG, auto manufacturing, and retail, that's beginning to change. Tech is beginning to take more of, a, take more of an anchor within the economies in these regions. So it presents a, a unique challenge as Europe is really going through a genuine digital transformation at this stage as the switch kind of moves from some of these more traditional industries towards, towards technology as well. I'm not sure if there's any more detail that you don't need to go deeper in there specifically. I think we'll probably cover some as we get along here, but I want to ask a couple of pointed questions about, about you and the team at Notion. And from your perspective too, you, know, you mentioned previous roles too, you were the GM for the region, you're sort of heading up the region in that same way. We've seen there be a couple of different models, you know, when we worked at Dropbox, it was a different model to that. But in your opinion, why would you do a GM model instead of potentially just functional heads that scatter across the region? It's a good question. And I think what's most important here is for organizations to really think about what suits for them. In my case, within Notion, because our teams are still relatively small in headquarters, I think we were looking for somebody who could give us a very clear overview of what potential strategy would need to be within the region. And then to begin with, to be a very strong guiding hand with all our existing functions and headquarters to kind of craft together a, a centralized strategy. Um, over time, that may change, however, as we see functions kind of grow and we bring on more new leaders, we're very open to changing the model initially, to changing the model a little bit further down the line to include more, more functional expertise. But to begin with, we felt it was, it was a good idea to have a, a center point who could put a good guiding hand on all of our, all of our major functional activities within the region. Right. And you're a GM who's also sort of a sales leader as well. Let me ask you something on the sales side here from a go-to-market perspective and the, the process that you had in HQ and then translating that into Europe, did anything change? How, did you have to modify things? Were there different activities, pipeline processes, contract terms? So far in Notion, we are still quite centralized in many of our major strategies. However, in previous companies like Asana and Dropbox, we would have been very, very mindful to look at what were each different regional requirement, particularly for the larger economies where we wanted to play very effectively in. And we're very open to making, to making nuanced changes there as well. I think something we noticed early on in Dropbox is that in North America, the company had, been, had done a really good job of managing to get people to sign up with credit cards. Um, it was a very, very easy sign-up flow and the user base was really growing. We noticed in Germany, there was, there was a delay in that we weren't seeing the same kind of growth trends. And after a little bit of research, we realized that and Germany didn't have a strong credit card culture the way it had in North America. So we had to work with our product teams to look at our sign-up flow uh, and see what was the 
what was the most appropriate way that we can make the flow very nuanced for the German region? Will we allow people to sign up with automatic invoicing? Should we take them through a different flow? And we did begin to unlock much more user growth um, by having that varied approach. And the interesting thing is, if you look at your, your various different regions within EMEA, there is like some little nuance in every different pocket, be it a more localized language approach, be it a different marketing positioning that you're using at the front end, which can just help you unlock smaller little bits of growth here and there, which in, in aggregate will lead up to, to stronger growth in general. And not always easy to begin with because you're, as you mentioned earlier on, you're going from a homogenous market to a market made up of, of many, many markets. And you don't always have all the bandwidth to, to make too many nuances and changes. But as your team grow and your requirement to, uh, to increase your user base or increase your conversion rate or bring on board more customers, as well as your ability to bring on board more expertise that can have a regional focus, um, I think there's a good phasing, which goes from very generic to like quite nuanced for, for a specific market. I mean, ultimately, down the line, you may see that your French users get a slightly different web experience to your US users, or your German users may see some different language and um, some different phraseology, which speaks a little bit more to what's topical and trending within their region. If, again, you have the bandwidth and the expertise and the, the ability to make those changes on the fly a little bit further down the line. So I'm, I'm going to ask a little bit of like a pan-European style of question from you, given that you're, you're the expert in this particular call. But can you tell us, you mentioned nuances within these micro markets here. Can you, if I'm just going to name a couple of markets here and I want to, I want to know just like one nuance. One of the things that now that you're a seasoned vet had, you would like to have told your younger self. So let's say like three biggest markets in, in Europe are the UK, France, Germany, and let's just for good measure throw in Spain. What's a nuance of the UK and, and let's just couple Irish in there too, because it's a, you know, the, the island English speaking market, what are some nuances of UK and Ireland? Yeah, absolutely. So because the UK is obviously an English speaking region and has a heavy level of exposure to, to US culture, um, what you'll typically find is the, is the UK market is just maybe a year, a couple of years behind what's very popular within North America. You'll notice that maybe 10 years ago, a fledgling startup scene began to proliferate within the UK. Um, and it's now that we're beginning to see the first unicorns and desicorns that are coming out of the UK as well. However, the UK market is, the UK economy is quite anchored around very traditional industries like finance, like manufacturing, like, like FMCG. So I think a lot of tech companies pushed very hard initially on the message of digital transformation when they were entering the market. And while the Silicon Valley effect had really taken grip within North America and companies were looking for new agile methods, I think within the UK, that message was kind of burnt out very fast. And many of the larger traditional industries that you were dealing with with this very, very, very Americanized message of change and faster routes of doing things, it didn't land so well. And I saw a number of tech companies would have teams that were relatively burnt because they didn't get the positioning perfectly tailored to what was topical and what was trending well within the UK. It's kind of different now where the digital transformation is, is a little bit cliche, but you can kind of resonate it quite well with the fast growing companies within the UK that people know and are very, very proud of. Um, so Farfetch and Probable.io, you know, once a lot of large organizations who are who are very eager for innovation and change are beginning to ape and mimic what they're in what they're seeing with with the kind of startup scenes within their their local countries. So I think for there, your marketing team wants to be really on point on tailoring its messaging to not take a super US focus um, or very US message and really tailor it to what's topical within within the UK market at this stage. Okay, let's cross the channel. Let's go to France. I understand that you might speak some French too, as I recall. But what about the French market? What would someone need to know about trying to sell to the French market? 
aussi bien important de parler quelques langues de nos jours. <laughs> um, no, I studied actually in university in France and I've got some Belgian cousins. So I speak French with a very unusual Brussels accent, which I've been, I've been told a couple of times. Um, so the French market is really fascinating for me. Um, for most of my career within tech, the French market's been just a little bit locked out. Um, technology wasn't seen as being a significant competitive advantage for organizations within that region. And the status quo was almost not to be questioned and not to be changed. Every now and again, you would find a large player within the market that would be looking for a degree of innovation because they need to change or because they're terrified of, of another company disrupting them. That would open the door a little bit more. But, but the, the culture there, the business culture there was, was kind of not to change. It was much more traditional. Also, I think of all of the markets in Europe that have really strong economic potential, France requires the highest level of localization. There's, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of pride and with French people and within the French market. And you really need to prove that your product um, can really speak to, uh, to, I think, to that economy super, super well. However, similar to the UK, we're seeing a huge change in the last three or four years. I think a lot of European economies are, are really embracing the concept of innovation. Um, they know that most of the, the money that's gone into the tech industry has been in the US, uh, has been in APAC um, over the last 10, 20 years. And you're seeing real centers of excellence from a tech perspective, obviously in Silicon Valley, in the East Coast of North America, and then in pockets of APAC. Europe, to a certain extent, have been, have been left behind for a long time. So European governments have been, have been investing heavily in creating the, the right factors which allow a tech ecosystem really, really evolve. Um, you know, VC firms that are giving money and funding to crazy ideas that can turn into fast growth and um, providing the right kind of benefits for organizations and, and incentives to help them kind of move quicker. And France is really at the center of this. We did a partnership with Notion recently with a, with a very innovative um, startup hub called Station F, um, who has hundreds and hundreds of, of French startups. Um, over the last three or four years, we've seen France go from kind of being fourth or fifth in, in Europe for innovation and tech to now being close to the top with many of those early stage companies that would have received funding five, three, four years ago, um, now becoming unicorns and, and on path to being decicorns as well. And that's really pulling the French economy along. So if you're a senior executive within one of the larger, more traditional players, you're not kind of being sent to Paris on these courses to learn about agility and innovation and seeing how a concept can go from zero to three or four billion dollars in value over the space of three or four years. And that ultimately trickles up through the economy uh, and makes it, a, in my opinion, just a, a little bit more robust and ready for it for the modern era. So I think for France, to answer your question more succinctly, um, a higher level of localization is always really important. English language from a business perspective has not proliferated in France to the same extent it would have, say, in the Nordics or the UK, or obviously in the UK, or in Germany. And then taking advantage of the topical trends that are happening within that market as well, and speaking to it very closely, and wrapping your arms around it and embracing it, um, I think is, is what's really required within France. Okay. As you mentioned, Germany, a larger region, the DOC region. What's a good factoid for the sales process in DOC? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I have noticed is that the requirement for localization within Germany has become less required in the last number of years because English as the primary business language has been taking foot more than it ever has. Larger organizations have been screaming out for innovation for the last number of years and have taken on technology with, a, with an increasing level of fervor. And there's a, there seems to be a new business culture within Germany, which is, which is very outward looking, so to say. I think as you move upstream within Germany, you do run into some of the classic enterprise paradigms uh, like security, like administration, which are always really important. Um, and, but I think tech companies, particularly coming from the US, are earlier and earlier getting on their localization game faster and understanding what are the nuances for this market. So 
I remember in Dropbox, the way that that product grew, it meant it was in a lot of companies before those companies realized it. The cloud was still a relatively new concept five or six years ago, and many organizations were kind of caught out by seeing these products grow within their companies. So in someone like Germany, data is always, data and data location is always a major issue, a really good concern, a very valid concern as well. So at that point in Dropbox, we'd figure out, should we build a, a European data center, which gives these customers a little bit more um, ease of mind for where their, their data is going to be located? How would that work within the product? Um, is that something that's easy to do? How, is this something that should be sold? Or is this something that should be given to these organizations by default? And at that stage, those tech companies were also thinking about what's, uh, what's their attitude towards security and what's our policy there in general. Um, and obviously, these European economies have been, have been really surfacing these questions really well. Fast forward to Asana and Notion, this almost goes as part of the territory as you're, as you're entering a region, is to understand some of these concerns and act to them really, really fast. So Asana, we spun up a data center reasonably fast, took us about a year. And we moved from it being a feature that you could sell to being something that was just granted to any user within that region as a matter of policy. And then the Notion, we're cooking up similar plans as well. Yeah, it's an incredible importance of data privacy. I mean, everybody knows the phrase of, of GDPR and... I think there's more and more stuff coming down that pipe. I'm going to stop pestering you specifically on, on regional assets as well, because I know that's a bit of the secret sauce. But the last question I have on regions, we're going we're gonna to skip out on the rest of Europe. I know there's so much more we could talk about in the Spanish market, in the Nordic market, the Italian market, Eastern Europe. But I'm actually very curious about location. So you're sitting in Dublin at the moment. We know that there's a bunch of great startup hubs, um, you know, Index Ventures, for example, and, and us as well, Sapphire Ventures have I've noted that you know, in European expansion, there's some good cities to go to that are really, really key. What are your thoughts on, on why a company chooses specific places? So you have your Dublins, your Londons, Amsterdams, Berlins. What would you recommend as potentially the, the best, like I guess, calculus to decide where your HQ wants to be? It's a really good question. I think it's a very important um, consideration for any organization that is thinking about how to, how to set up in Europe. I think as we discussed earlier on, Europe sense a huge opportunity to any company who wants to, to invest in operations here, but also a unique challenge. So the fact that it is so many different markets, um, many different countries with very different cultural considerations to consider, a decision needs to be made as you enter the region, where do you get going? Where do you start? And interestingly, you'll find that these countries are vying for your business. They want you to, to set up here. They'd like you to create your operations for the region and administer the whole region from, from their location. And I think they've done a really good job of showing why their specific territory or geo is a good fit for your organization. I've also been on the other side of things in these young companies that are scaling and growing and trying to make a decision on how they, how they do these operations. Sometimes within an organization, you'll have a high degree of expertise. Some people who've seen, who've done it before, understand the, the, the benefits and some of the pitfalls in different areas and understand how to make that matrix. I've also seen some scenarios where it's just, you know, some young founders and that. Uh, early stage CEO or COO who are, who are making a call on, on how they go. Um, typically, what happens is there's a matrix brought up of all of these likely sites and locations, and you draw up one of the factors around how you'd make your decision. Um, what are the ease, what's the ease of doing business in this market? What is the language and culture of this market like? And does it resonate really well with, with our language and culture? Um, is there good governmental support to get rolling? Are there incentives and benefits to help us move as well? Um, but almost entirely, it is, is kind of fallen down to two factors for me. One has been access to talent. And are we able to hire here, hire here the right type of talent that we want to put into the teams that we're thinking of growing? And then secondly, does this market have a good track record? Do we have other people who we know, who are like us, who uh, we kind of admire and want to be like? 
And do they have a track record of success in those markets as well? Have they done a good job there? And I think in equal measure, certainly from the Silicon Valley perspective, there are some very, very, very positive stories. And then there's some decisions that some organizations will regret as well. So I think that's uh, that's one thing that, that companies will keep in mind. Nice. Yeah, it's a very tricky one because there's also a lot of pride to cities, I've noticed, as I've asked that question across various leaders and people always kind of want their country and their their city to be on the forefront. But I understand, yeah, that matrix is is key, especially when you're considering the idea of of talent, as you mentioned, especially in this really, really competitive post-COVID market. Do you need people to be local? Will people be able to work remotely? And does that matter more? And, and I think HQs might be shifting a bit. And in that idea, and kind of for my next question, general talent, working with sales teams, keeping people in line, you're opening a new region for a company that's been operating before in a different place. You know that there's going to be questions of translating sales processes. There's going to be questions of hiring and so on. But but most importantly, kind of core to the success and happiness of a lot of people is just their company culture. You know, we came from Dropbox. We had a very distinct company culture there. I know Asana has a very distinct company culture. So what do you do? How did you keep people on that particular line? How did you adapt it slightly for the European market? Like, what is your idea for how to be successful when it comes to making sure that the company feels like the company just maybe in a different location? Yeah, it's a great question. It is one that cannot be overstated how important it is to put a deep level of consideration into this. A lot of organizations, when they, when they move into a different region, it's almost 50-50 whether they get the early team right or not. And it takes a high degree of input, both from within the region and from headquarters, to set this thing up for success, is the way I describe it. And, and it takes a huge degree of mindfulness to just be very aware of all the factors and all the little things which go into supporting culture over correctly. So I think, I think in my mind, um, it starts with the person you hire. <laughs> for better or worse, it starts with the first person you put on the ground. And also how invested your, your company leadership is in this strategic maneuver around investing in the field. If this is a decision that's come from mid-level management and they're kind of managing it, they won't have all the ability to set this, uh, set this new venture up for success. It really needs to come from the CEO's desk or the COO's desk and they need to be personally invested in making this work. You need to choose your first leader really, really well. Do they align to your cultures and your value within the organization? Do they subscribe to them? Are they going to be an ad ultimately rather than, rather than a fit to your organization? And then what type of team are they going to be building out? What degree of input do you want to put in there? And um, your early hires are super important as well. So I kind of talk a lot about Jedis and Stormtroopers. I think in the early days within an organization, you really want your people to be very flexible and to be like Jedis. There's going to be a lot of a lot of issues, a lot of problems. There's going to be some things that need a bit of translation and a bit of, of fifth parallel thinking. <laughs> and you want to ensure that you have people on board who, uh, who are really down for that, who are up for an adventure and kind of are enjoy that early start of the journey. Later on down the line, that type of profile becomes a little bit bored when things become a little bit more process oriented. And that's where I think about you need your stormtroopers more than your Jedis or your Jedis grow into different roles. So, so the landing team is also really important. I think it's super, super important to ensure there's a degree of transplant from headquarters as well where possible. So if your leader spends a good bit of time in headquarters initially, soaking in the culture, making key relationships very strongly with, with people who are going to be supporting the region, then you want to effectively be starting your new team with some transplants from headquarters. Some people who are, who are high performers, who are well tenured within the organization, who know the how and the why of why things are set up the way they are within the organization, who can translate process, who can translate systems, who know the tooling really, really well, and can almost sponge outwards that culture when they get into the, into the new region. Super, super important as well. Getting this wrong means that you can effectively set up a different company, a different organization within the region. And it's very fast that silos can spring up and, or attitude when things are, are out of sight, they're out of mind as well. I think once you're set up as well, 
it's really, really important to be incredibly respectful of headquartered thinking as well, in my view. Um, I think the flow needs to be right between what's coming from headquarters, because, you know, they're very connected teams. They're all sitting with each other. They're thinking about things quite deeply. And I think you should be looking for an 80% pattern match within the region with about a 20% room for, for any cultural nuance. You don't want to get into a scenario where there's a bit of grumbling or animosity between the region and headquarters as well. And that can, that can spin up really, really fast if you're not very careful towards it. And to make that happen, you know, the, the grease that, that makes all of these pieces work is just an overstatement on communication. I would encourage all of our early teams to over-communicate. They should be in every Slack channel. Um, they should be following what's happening within the organization super closely. Um, you should be drinking in everything that's happening at headquarters and, and living it and embodying it and supporting it and being visible in, in conversations and online. But then you should also be communicating what's happening in the region as well. Um, we, in each of my organizations, we set up like just a monthly newsletter. Here's all the stuff that's happening um, across sales, across marketing, across engineering, across customer support. Here's the great new logos we've brought on board. Here's how it ties to our regional strategy, just to, to keep your region kind of top of mind which is super important. You never want to get into a situation where your, your regional team is a bit of a black box and people in headquarters can say, I don't necessarily know what's going on there. I know some names, I know some personalities, but I'm not sure what's happening. And that ultimately falls within your, your leadership team within the region as well. Mm, that's a really good point, especially the, the two relationships and how they need to work together. It, I remember when I moved out here, realizing that all hands were just not a convenient time regularly. And luckily our organization at the time decided to switch that to somewhat of a a change, but that's a small thing that makes a region feel like they're connected. So I guess in that sense, it's it's not these massive endeavors that you can do. You can do things like, hey, our all hands is now going to be in the morning in, in California, because that way, at least we know European colleagues can come on or let's do it every two weeks, morning and evening so that we have you know APAC colleagues that can join as well. It's a great point. It's a really, really good point as well. And that's why I think it kind of goes both ways as well. And that's why you write the right leadership to speak to, to some of these pieces, because they can pass over pretty easily. I think there's an interesting phase into it as well. So what you'll notice is that many of these companies are, they're just so proud that they're setting up operations in other regions. It's a really big deal. And there's so much positive sentiment internally within these organizations. So there's a great wave that you can ride on positive sentiment and support to kind of move mountains and create the right connectivity earlier on. And then later on, I know within Dropbox, we had that company, All Hands. And as the company grew, became less and less relevant to everybody within the region. So we spun up our own regional all hands as well, which is almost like an echo of the, of the centralized all hands, which spoke a little bit more to what was going on within the region, but also redoubled some of the primary communication efforts from headquarters as well. Um, internal communications is a skill right now within organizations, a really, really strong one. And, uh, and there's always a fine nuance that's required for, for the EMEA region. Yeah, and on, on that too, I, I wonder your thoughts on, on executive visits when we're allowed to open up and travel again. It seems like we're we're slowly but surely coming into that into that space of the world. What's a good cadence for executive visits, for HQ visits, for whatever? Sometimes I felt like the executives that I worked with, they didn't really know much about the region because they just didn't come very often. But you know, what what are your thoughts from having done you know three to four big companies of scale that way? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think there's a couple of things that I think about there. So first of all. Building an affinity with the region is really, really, really important. And your executives in these companies are, are usually quite visible people. And it gives a real charge to your regional team when, when some of your execs show up, for sure. I don't think it should just be execs. I think anybody who has a stake within a given region, from leadership all the way through to middle management or even ICs, it's really important for them to understand, uh, understand the characters, the personalities, and the nuances for the region as well. So I certainly am a huge advocate for a high degree of connectivity with people going over and back, particularly in the early days between headquarters and, and the region as well. 
The next piece I think about is that understanding these markets is always really important as well. And there's nothing more useful than getting firsthand experience of what your customers or what your users or the companies that you're dealing with within these markets are thinking or saying or acting. Um, it's one thing to present it within a meeting to your execs, but it's really good for them to experience it as well. So I've often run a playbook where our execs are put on the road when they come to Europe and let's go and meet 20 customers in the UK. Let's go and meet 10 customers in Germany and France. Let's get you in front of, of some execs within their company so you can understand what's, what's different in their view to, to what our centralized thinking is. And that's a very enriching journey for many of those execs. They really enjoy it and they get to see getting a whole hot take on what's going on within the region. I had a pretty funny story where my previous boss in Asada, uh, Oliver Jay, was a head of revenue. I was trying to explain you know, the status of the German economy and, and some of the questions that we, would, that we would get from companies who are looking at our tool versus you know, the, the echo chamber that can happen within when selling to tech companies and headquarters. And we brought OJ to this, to this little place called Allendorf with a, a large customer called Wiesmann at the time, just to see how different the world is there. And we ended up on a factory tour around their large production facility with a hairnet and a, and a white coat. It was just a million times removed from the regular tech vibe that he would have been experiencing in headquarters. And so he went back with a very, very different perspective around the challenges that we face within, within the market and the, and, the, and the type of profiles that we're selling to, which is fascinating. And the next piece is that execs can come from headquarters and can, can see some things they don't like as well. So it's not something trivial. I think when your leaders are coming over, it's really important for you to have a very coherent plan um, for your strategy to be, to be well aligned to what the company is doing. Uh, because you, you don't want to look like uh, things are going in the wrong direction, so to say. So I think I've noticed that leaders can always be a little bit on edge when people are coming from headquarters because you, you want them to be leaving, heading back to headquarters with a really positive view on what's going on from the region. I really understand what's happening. I think we're, I, I've got a clear picture on how much more we need to invest here in order to move the needle forward. So it's, uh, it's definitely very worthwhile. The last, last kind of couple questions here. The one is, I guess, the very big question. And, and Every CEO, every product creator is probably thinking, okay, why is this going to be so hard? You know, why am I listening to somebody talk about this? It should just be as easy as opening up an office and selling there. But there's a really obvious conversation around you know, product market fit. D does this thing resonate with the people who have a different upbringing, have a different education, have a different day-to-day uh, -day life? So I'm going to just, I'm going to list off a couple of things, but I'm curious of your top three when it comes to a, the proper product market fit in the European market. And I know that changes across the region, but let's just imagine for a moment that there's a bit more uh, similarities than there probably are. So is it, is it compliance that's most important? Is it us translating the product and fitting into the culture? Is it the product being able to innovate older, maybe non-tech industries a bit better? Is it potentially just being able to be flexible and not be fit for use cases that we're used to? Um, what, what are the the keys to product market fit? Really poignant question. And that's kind of at the nub of how we do our work, I guess. You're going to hate this answer, but really it's a mix of all of those above, of all of those, those four considerations that you pull out. I think the way you look at it is that, certainly for the businesses that I've been part of, I think data is the most important thing. So getting your instrumentation set up and your system set up so as you can derive the right level of data, um, which is showing where your product is currently getting traction, um, in what markets is your product speaking to the target audience that you're aiming for, um, being able to pull the right insights there into why and how. And that can be quite perplexing. So you could, you could say that France and Germany are quite similar as markets, but you can see for some reason we're like really spiking in users in France. And we don't always necessarily know why that is. Um, but what's happening there and how do we get to the, to the center of why that's happening? I think looking at them to say that, where do we want to play? Where do we want to play? Where do we definitely want to play? 
And how are we doing there at the moment? So let's say we, you mentioned earlier on the three big economies, the UK, Germany, and France. And uh, let's say the, the next tier will be something like the Benelux and the Nordics. Let's say that we're performing really well in France right now, but we haven't really got the right level of traction in Germany. Um, we're doing fine in the UK, but we're really killing it in the Nordics right now, um, just based on the data that we're seeing of, of, of user, user growth and, and the revenue that we're generating from there. Um, we could say that we, what is blocking us from getting the same level of traction and growth in France as we're seeing in Germany is our marketing message not working right? Have we not activated the right early stage adopters? Um, do, we have, do we need to invest in our, in our acquisition strategy there? Does it need to be kind of differentiated? Um, same for, for the Nordics and the Benelux. Uh, is there a compliance issue? Is that the reason why people aren't, aren't buying our product? Um, have we not translated things well or have we translated it at all? And then similarly, you know, is our product something that's culturally like, acceptable within, within that region as well? We met something that was, that was very interesting. We were very popular with tech companies in Germany with the, with the startup scene. They just really got it. They liked the organized nature of that product. Um, but larger organizations, we weren't growing in as much as we wanted to. And we noticed that we were getting blocked by workers' cancels. And the famous workers' cancels in Germany who have a seat on the board of every large organization saw the product as being almost like spying on employees. Um, and is this a way to, to kind of to regulate uh, their work in an invasive fashion? So we had to figure out how to, how to answer that in a very succinct fashion and in a really, really good way that spoke to that audience. Um, and that was part of that nuance as well. So for me, for me, to answer your question a little bit more directly as well. I think it starts with, I guess, the innovation piece. Is the market ready for your technology? Is that why it's moving forward there? And if you want to accelerate growth within that market, is your product a good cultural fit for that region? Does it need a high degree of localization like translation? And then ultimately, what are the barriers to entry that you need to, to circumnavigate in order to make that work? That's a very, very, very insightful. And it, as with many things, it's not easy. <laughs> I wish it was like a very, very black and white answer. It's always a fun head scratcher. Yeah, I mean, he's explaining it to headquarters as all these snakes and ladders. It's almost like a game of that sometimes. Yeah. No, but I think that's what brings the region a lot of, a lot of focus. And, and, you know, from a market economy size, it's, it is very big. But I guess this is the last question and, and just love to hear your thoughts is when does Europe sort of catch up to the American market? You know, most people look at the revenue models and especially exited companies, you're looking about 25 or 35% of your revenues coming from Europe and the rest is from the rest of the world, mostly in the US still, a very high amount anyways in the US. So when does Europe start to become that dominant market? Are we still going to be sort of ping-ponging a little bit back and forth? It's a great question. I think as I mentioned before, 20 years ago, tech in Europe wasn't really on the map. I mean, we, we had SAP and you had some older kind of hardware manufacturers within the region as well. But the whole concept of the ecosystem of the startup scene just really hadn't taken foot in Europe. It was obviously growing super well within Silicon Valley and then in different pockets within, within Asia. Um, but Europe had been somewhat left behind. Um, and the reason being is that it didn't need it. Um, major industries were the anchor of all of the major economies. And this is where governmental thinking was around. How do we support these industries? How do we, how do we continue to grow them and ensure that there's still a strong, a strong anchor of our, of our employment model within the region? It's all changed now. In America, tech is now the largest industry within America. It's overtaken finance last year as being the industry with the, the highest uh, impact on the economy in general. Um, within Asia, we're beginning to see, you know, Chinese to be the workhouse of the world. It's now, it's now one of the innovation leaders. Uh, and many of the largest tech companies are coming from there as well. Um, Europe has always had incredibly smart people, very well-educated people. Just the talent has been more funneled into more traditional industries before. However, that's beginning to change. I think European economies are are terrified of disruption, absolutely terrified of disruption. They know that within five years, your, your very well-established, very rooted, large organization can be outmaneuvered by 
by a more innovative organization that comes from a different region as well. So these larger companies are beginning to invest a lot more of their thinking in, uh, in how do we become more agile, how do we become a lot more innovative, what does the next five years, 10 years hold for us, and how do we prepare for that better? Um, European economies and governments are also really heavily investing in this space within, within technology, with innovation. To do that, they're, they're allowing room for, for finance institutes to, to have some form of venture capitalist um, funding, to create that ecosystem where you want people to be moving into these innovative fields. And we're beginning to see that. We're beginning to see that take hold. I think. I think Berlin for me was the first almost San Francisco or Silicon Valley like atmosphere that I saw. And I went to visit Berlin, and you know all these these cool young tech people who were who were looking, acting, talking like what you see in Silicon Valley. And these these young founders that were getting found, that were getting good um, funding from VC firms that were European based. Um, you start seeing some large organizations that. Uh, that had exits beginning to reinvest uh, some of their the money that they made from that into newer ideas, newer streams. You start seeing some talent networks begin to to spread across new startups and new industries, and that that real kind of uh, startup e growth ecosystem beginning to take root and take hold. So I think that'll increase in Europe over the next five to ten years exponentially, and we'll see similar patterns to what we saw in North America, where tech could become one of the one of the more dominant industries within the space. I mean, already we're seeing every day, if you're signed up to your, to your Crunchbase or TechCrunch newsletters, you're seeing almost every day, you're seeing new Series A, new Series B, new Series C fundings for, for many of these companies based in Berlin and Paris and Copenhagen and Amsterdam and Dublin and London, who are taking these really, you know, what were crazy ideas, making them into businesses and getting these, these valuations based off the future trends that people are going to need these technologies for. So I can see it growing, a, a really strong mix between powerful economies really talented people, um, a very worldly global outlook because Europe is it's very global by, by nature. I think it's going to be an interesting time over the next five to 10 years in this space. No, I'm excited to see how it evolves. Um, Robbie, really, thank you so much for the time. Always a, a pleasure to speak to you and, and the insight was incredibly helpful. And I know people listening to this who are trying to dissect and understand the market are going to be able to look at this and say, well, I wish I knew as much as he did. And you might even have some people reaching out asking for more help there, but I really, really appreciate that. And and thank you for taking the time today. Of course, real pleasure to see you again, Shek, and, and love speaking on these topics. Uh, and anybody who wants to talk about these pieces, I'm pretty obsessed with them. So I'm always, always available to connect on LinkedIn or, or speak over email. Thank you for joining right. us so on much. this week's episode of the Startup Guide to Growth. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we invite you to visit sapphireadventures.com for detailed show notes, additional company building resources, and information on how you can connect with Sapphire Ventures and our team. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google so that other operators and entrepreneurs can find our show. And make sure to tune into next week's episode to discover the latest trends, techniques, and strategies for startup success. Until next time, keep building.